was chatting with Natasha here at the beginning, and we realized we haven't been in chapel for like six weeks, so it's nice to be back. Nice to be back. Uh, okay, so who here is a tea drinker? Okay, all right. And I know there's coffee drinkers, right? Coffee drinkers, yeah, okay. Uh, do you, who drinks both? Yeah, okay, yeah. Everybody who's a coffee drinker is like, yeah, okay, I drink tea too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, who thinks tea is hotter than coffee when you first drink it? Yeah, I do too. Okay, I'm not the only one. Like when you first drink a cup of tea, the starting temperature is hotter than the starting temperature of a cup of coffee. You with me? Okay, great. So earlier today, I made myself laugh in a room when I was by myself. That ever happened to you? Okay, so uh, I was drinking the tea, and again, Initial temperature is super hot. So what do you do with a hot drink? You suck air in, right, to like help balance out the heat of the liquid so when it hits your mouth, it's not that bad, right? Normal? Everybody does this? Have you ever, it's been so hot, have you ever been so nervous, the amount of water that's gonna hit your mouth? So you just slowly tilt and you're slowly going, to the point where like the water's not hitting your lips, but your, your mouth and your chest is full of air that you have to stop, blow the arrow, and then start again. Anybody ever done that? Yeah, I did that today, and it made me laugh. So I thought I'd share with you. Thanks, Brent. Okay, so um, we started off the first semester in what book? John, yeah. And we're going to start the semester off in what book? John, right on. Awesome. Uh, we're going to take the next couple of weeks and we're going to go through a few chapters in the book of John. We're going to land in chapter 13 today. Uh, we're going to go through chapters like 14, 15, and 16 next week. And then Kim's going to finish us off uh, for this little three-week series uh, in chapter 17, maybe into 18. Uh, and so uh, before we get into tonight, I want to take care of some housekeeping things. So um, we've had long traditions here at this school that last year we weren't able to continue those traditions for COVID reasons, uh, and it broke our heart. A couple of things that we weren't able to do that we love doing, we weren't able to do. One of those things uh, was in the second semester, we usually have grad chapels. And so we have our senior students or graduates have the opportunity to stand up here and take on the responsibility and the weight and the great privilege of preaching God's word to all of you. We weren't able to do that last year with our 50 cohorts and the way that chapels kind of landed last year, it didn't work. We get to bring that back this semester and I'm super excited. I'm super excited and so we're gonna start that in a couple of weeks on our Monday morning chapels. Next week specific, uh, what we're going to do is a long tradition of Summit Pacific College. Uh, Kim and I had this when we were students here a long, long time ago, right? Uh, I have a anniversary, the 50th year Jubilee anniversary of WPBC, the name before Summit, uh, um, yearbook in my office. And in that yearbook, there's like testimonies accounts of uh, in-house spiritual emphasis days retreat that took place years ago. So we're talking years and years ago this school is about 80, almost 80 years old that it's been running. It was on the year 50 that in this book that's in my office, it was talking about spiritual emphasis days and that it had been a long tradition running even prior to that. Uh, and we weren't able to do that last year. Uh, and so next week, we get to have our in-house spiritual emphasis days retreat here again. And I am super excited for that. Yeah. 
And so for first years and second years, uh, some logistics for you and for uh, juniors and seniors, some refreshers for you. Uh, we're gonna start here Monday morning, regular chapel time at 11 a.m. We're gonna have a prayer summon in here. So we're not gonna do a chapel service, but we're gonna have some music and some time of corporate prayer together to really just allow the Lord to till the soil of our hearts to prepare for what he wants to do next week in our in-house retreat. Okay, then what we're going to do is we adjust class schedules for Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday morning. And we have chapel every morning at 10.30 in here, in this room, um, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, and Thursday morning. We still will have our Wednesday night 7 p.m. service that we're at right now, again next week. And so it really is like the prayer summit plus four chapel services. And we have some guest speakers that are gonna be joining us next week. And so our guest speakers is a wonderful couple that hail from Castlegar. And it is James and Maria McFadden are gonna be here next week. So James and Maria are really good friends of ours. They are wonderful pastors. They have sent quite a few of their students and their kids uh, to Summit. And so we are very grateful that they're gonna be here with us next week, okay? And they're gonna be going through chapters 14 and 15 and 16 of John. And that's why we're starting out of chapter 13 uh, this evening. But before we get into it, I wanna, say, or I wanna share a message that James texted me today, okay? This is what he said. Good evening, Summit. Maria and I can't wait to see you all next week. We have been praying into our time with you for a while now, and we're thrilled that our Heavenly Father has been preparing our time together. We, in all caps, every time it says no, it's in all caps, okay? We know that there will be deep and profound encounters with the living God next week. We know that hearts will be transformed in Jesus' name. We know that your lives will be profoundly impacted, not from us, but from Christ's work in your lives as you choose to surrender to him. We know this because God has given us a holy expectation to see his spirit touch your lives, search your hearts, and change your eternities. See you soon. Love you all. God bless. Isn't that so nice? Isn't that wonderful? Like a, This is a long-standing tradition that we have here at this school because we believe in what this next week could be for many of you. Being a Pentecostal school, we believe in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. To see the fruit of the Spirit in operations in our day-to-day -day life, we believe in the work and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're gonna take some time next week to really dive in, to really open ourselves up and say, Lord, have your way in me. I think of those who are graduating this year, that it will be your last retreat of this spiritual emphasis days. May it be for you a, a, an assurance of the call that he has in your life in whatever direction you're seeing yourself go to in a couple of months from now. May it be that assurance that you're seeking from him, that he holds your future. For those who have uh, years to return here, that it would be a foundational moment that you get to stand upon and look back and say, man, I met with the Lord so intimately during that time. Now he desires that at all times for us. But when we pause our regular schedules, and yes, I know there's still classes, they're adjusted, but we're taking extra time and an extra focus to really put ourselves before the Lord and say, Spirit, move. Like, Spirit, have your way. I want whatever it is that you desire to speak into my life, and I want to submit to that. So that's what next week is about. And so we've been praying for you, and we look forward to what it's going to be, and that we get to do it again. I'm just so pumped about that. 
Okay, so we're going to get into John chapter 13. So uh, get your Bibles open to John chapter 13 and keep it open because we're going to work our way through the, the overwhelming majority of this chapter together. I was saying to a few students, I haven't preached this year yet. It's last year was the last time I preached. Uh, and so like buckle up, we're going to be here for a little while, okay? <laughs> I shouldn't have did that. (coughs) (coughs) The joke backfired. John chapter 13, before we get into it, it's kind of like a split in the book of John. The the chapters of 1 to 12, uh, theologians call it the book of signs, right? We went through a lot of these portraits, a lot of these scenes that John writes about talking about who Jesus is, talking about him being the light of the world, him being the bread of life, him being the, the good shepherd. And he, he gives these signs of who Jesus is and he parallels it with these portraits, with these scenes. And we, we went through them, right? With Nicodemus, we went through it with the woman at the well. We went through it with the, the man of, at the pool of Bethesda and the blind man and the woman caught in adultery. And we went through these stories together where, where John, he, he reveals who Jesus is, these signs, and he gives these stories to parallel with it. So the book of signs. The, the latter half of the book of John, chapters 13 to 21, is known as the book of glory. Isn't that great? Turn to your neighbor and say, book of glory. Glory. <clears throat> The book of glory, and what it does is is John now from this public ministry of Jesus with, with, yes, his disciples and the years together and all the people in which that he ministers to now really zones in and focuses into this private inner circle and this private conversation that they have in this room together. And then ultimately to the ultimate glory of Christ, the hour that is to come of him on the cross and that ultimate glorification of, of God's love being poured out. So the audience is, is narrow to those who, who truly believe, and we'll see the drama that entails with that line. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to focus in on this, this section. And so, yes, there was all these multiple signs, and then uh, the stories about it. Now here we just have, like, one sign and one story that we're working towards, and that's Christ's death on the cross and ultimate resurrection from the grave that we're going to look into. We get to see the contrast of of love and betrayal, of of good and evil and light and of darkness. And so here we go, chapter 13, verse 1. Let's let's read it together. It'll be up on the the screen as well. (coughs) It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Isn't that great? He now showed them the full extent of his love. Verse two, the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped the towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? 
Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you slides that in. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So I've titled tonight's message, Love One Another. And here we have this beautiful example of love. Like the the true model of love, the true model of servanthood, right? In in verse one, right at the very beginning there, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The savior of the world, that who was in the beginning, the word that John talks about in chapter one, who all of life is brought into being because of him, shows the full extent of his love as he, as he bends down and he washes his disciples' feet, those closest to him. And foot washing, right? It was common in the Greco-Roman, in the Jewish culture, first century Jewish culture. Like foot washing was normal. Like it was a, it was a daily thing. And it was um, also a, a preparation for Sabbath, so they would do it weekly as well. It was also a, a, a gesture of hospitality as you would have guests into your room, into your home. Uh, and so it was a very common practice, right? Roads were dusty, people walked everywhere, Birkenstocks were in style just like they are now. But it wasn't just common, It wasn't just common. Ancient sources reveal that foot washing, excuse me, was a degrading task, right? We know this. It it was humiliating in the sense of having to wash someone's feet. Or on the other sense, it was a place to honor somebody. There were social implications that took place. It was only done out of an extreme act of devotion to someone of a higher status than yourself. A, A student to a teacher, or to a rabbi, at that time, a wife to a husband, a children to their parents. And it wasn't just because of dirtiness on the feet, but there were the social implications that were in play when you were to wash somebody else's feet. It would be somebody of higher status and importance to you, like a slave to a master. And here is Jesus adopting this posture of a slave to mankind the savior and creator of the world, placing himself down, taking off his outer garments so he's just in his undergarments and washing his disciples' feet. This beautiful picture of love. It's an amazing picture of love. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of serving. Like it means 
in the sense of following him, it means taking up a lesser role for the benefit of somebody else. That's love. Submitting yourself to a lesser role for the benefit of the other. And Jesus isn't just like teaching this this humility lesson on leadership, right? He does say the words, I have set you an example in verse 15, that you should do as I have done for you. But this symbolizes something far greater than just a leadership lesson on humility and serving. This this foot washing symbolizes this spiritual cleansing that is to come with Christ on the cross and the ultimate resurrection from the grave. It symbolizes this forgiveness of sin, this spiritual cleansing. And what John does, right, in the artistry of his language, as he writes these words, so would be presented publicly to all those who hear. He writes to paint this picture and parallels together this spiritual cleansing and model of servanthood. He, he puts together the spiritual cleansing work of Jesus and the moral mandate of humble service that they go together one and the same. That freedom of sin Freedom in Christ and salvation in Jesus is to be alongside humble service of love to other people. You cannot have one without the other. They go hand in hand. And I'm not here to look for a raise by any means, uh, but I have some wonderful leaders that I'm very grateful for that have been in my life that exemplified this. Uh, as I've been able to uh, walk with, walk behind, observe closely, observe from a distance. Uh, And I would say an example that we all have of a true, humble, kind leader is our president, Dave Damchuk. Like one of the kindest men that I can think of in my life who talk about consistency in his character is. We We have a president of a college who is constantly asking names of every new freshman that comes on campus every September and every January because he wants to know their names. We have a president who thinks of you well before you ever set foot on this campus for every student that's ever been here under his leadership. Like we sit in recruitment meetings and he's thinking, how can we, how can we care? How can we love? How can we serve? It's just not how can we get them in our seats. It's how can we help alongside them and give them, love them, care to them, teach them in what God's call is in their life. How can we give them money? How can we give them books? How can we give them whatever? That's just who he is, a very generous, very humble and kind man. He he teaches in our classrooms. Many presidents don't teach in the classrooms at the colleges that they lead. And you guys have the chance to be in his classes. He's a very humble and kind man, and I'm grateful for him. A big reason why I used this Bible today is actually because this Bible was a gift from him uh, back in 2004. All of you were pretty young at that time. Uh, I was a student here. Kim and I were students here at the time, and I was interning at a church that he was at. And I I lost my Bible. I think I forgot it at youth one night, and then I went back the next day to find it, and it was gone. And so he gave me his Bible, and it's got his old, like, old sticker of, like, from the library of Dave Demchuk that he puts in all of his books. <laughs> but, but what a kind and what a humble leader that we have as an example in front of us. And Jesus here, the perfect example 
of a humble, kind leader. This one of love and of serving, of humbling himself to a posture of a slave before his disciples and says, I have set the example that you should do what I have done for you. Canadian author uh, Dave Soller, he says, Christ-likeness does not just include character. It also includes deeds and action, right? And we so often can get caught up into the, the, the large philosophical concepts and we can miss the hands-on touch points for the truths that God shares that when we're to love our neighbors, we can think about some imaginary person, that we're to love everybody, really is we're to love the person that is most closest to us. Like to names that we can think of, who are my neighbor? And here Jesus is showing the example and the author says here, it's not just about character. It's not just about the philosophical side or the change of what's on inside. We need to see it take place in our deeds, in our actions. And he's basically quoting James when he talks about faith without action is dead. So love without serving is not love. Amen? Love without serving is not love. It's false love and it's bad fruit. And we'll get more into that concept of fruit and trees and remaining in Christ. We'll get into that next week a bit more. But you cannot become more like Jesus and become less fruitful at the same time. It's impossible. So we have a beautiful example of love. And then things begin to take a turn. John, in his writing, is so full of of drama, so full of emotion, so full of these pictures of light and dark and good and evil. And so we go from this example of love in the beginning of the chapter to this betrayal of love in verses 18 to 30. Verses 18. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scriptures. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. You can feel the tension. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another. At a loss to know which of them he meant, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is like always a humble flex that John uses in his writing, right? To know which one he meant, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And Simon Peter uh, motioned to the disciple and said, ask him which one he means. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus, in the way that he works, I just love it. He answers, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, like you just see the drama, like just building and intensifying. And then he dipped the piece of bread. He gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What are you about to do? Or what you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. 
But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Right at the beginning of this section, right? I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I have chosen. But Jesus did choose Judas at the beginning to follow him, right? This one haunts me, if I'm honest. Like this passage, like it makes me think to a degree that scares me sometimes. Like the moment that actually where where Judas handed Christ over uh, wasn't until chapter 18, but it's this moment here, right? This critical moment that Satan enters into Judas and darkness takes over his life. As soon as he takes that bread, Satan enters in and then he is just replaced with darkness in all that he does following. But he's like, he's one of his disciples, right? Spent three years of ministry with Jesus. Like he saw miracles, like miracles upon miracles. He saw them take place. He, he heard his teachings. He witnessed his teachings. He was there with the group in those evening chats saying, what did this mean? What did this mean? Jesus explained this to us once again. He was the group treasurer that we, we read here. He handled the money, which means he had a place of trust a place of esteem to those around him. So he's a prominent person within the disciples, right? Judas stood closer to the perfect revelation of God than the overwhelming majority of all mankind. He goes through the foot washing moment. He receives communion from the Christ himself. And yet he changes side and chooses darkness. Like at what point, at what point did this decision happen? Like at what point did he say, I'm going to choose darkness over light? Because I I know there's a a significant moment here where where Judas, right? It says in verse 27 that, that Satan entered him. So I know there's a significant moment where that happened, but we know that there was a buildup, right? We know that there was a progression to get to this point, even at the beginning of the chapter. In verse two, right? The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. So there was definitely a progression to getting to that, mo- that point where Satan entered into him. The ESV version says that already put his heart to betray Jesus. And that translated that he made up his mind. So it was a personal decision that he made up his mind that he was going to betray Jesus. So the enemy, like bit by bit by bit, is, is speaking into Judas, planting seeds of hate, planting seeds of deceitfulness and of rage and of anger and of jealousy and of self-righteousness. And it's planting bit by bit by bit. Eventually to the point where he becomes this pawn of the evil one. And Judas runs away from the light and into the night. I thought that was pretty good, right? Verse 30, right? The way that John uses his language, I love it. He says, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Remember with Nicodemus and the portrait of nighttime and his use of light and dark, here it is, Jesus is leaving the light and choosing darkness. 
in his life. But at what point? It wasn't just at the foot washing, right? We know that there was an inclination there again. He made up his mind. But we could look back even further. You can go back to chapter six. Jesus performs a miracle, has a conversation with a bunch of people. He says some really weird things. He said, if you want salvation through me, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Really weird teaching at that time without the context, right? And a lot of people say, this is a hard teaching. I don't know if I can accept this, that I need to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. A little too weird for me. So a bunch of people leave. Love Jesus' response to this. What does he do? Right to his 12. And he challenges them. This is what he says. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asks the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. And he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who through one of the 12 was later to betray him. So we see the working of the enemy already there. You can even go a little bit further into chapter 12. There's the moment where, where Mary pours the perfume on the feet of Jesus, the way of honoring and anointing and adoring Jesus. What does Judas do? Whoa, 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 that's expensive perfume. We could use that. We could sell that, right? He's the treasurer. He's the money guy. We could use that to, to buy something. I even think of like miracles that took place. Maybe I'm reading into this a bit too much, but again, this is where my mind goes. He's, he's dealing with the money, they're living in a level of poverty. He sees Jesus feed thousands of people. Jesus can perform all these miracles, yet we still have to live in poverty. There's definitely this hunger for money that Judas has. He sells the Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And what does Paul say to Timothy? The root of all evil is what? The love of money. So we see this evil already taking place inside Judas's life, bit by bit by bit by bit. And despite the proximity, in spite of how close he was to the light, Judas still chose darkness. Oh, that haunts me. In spite of how close he was, the trust that he had amongst his peers, the level of, of authority he had of being a part of the disciples, the conversations, the intimacy that he would have had with Jesus, he still chose darkness. You guys, this is a warning for us, right? Judas is an insider. He's not just some random person. Like he is an insider, smaller than our classrooms. There's a group of 12 of them, 13, of course, with Christ. But this is the inside group of Jesus and this person chooses to betray his love. And so we read this as Christians, as insiders, understanding the context. Guys, we could be, any one of us, could be Judas. I could be Judas. Any one of us in this story could be Judas. And so I was chatting with Rob McIntyre this, this last week, and uh, he had a, a sermon illustration with this wedge that he shared to me years ago. I used it for a more conference uh, and thought it would be fitting for, for this sermon tonight. So Rob McIntyre's um, sermon illustration, I want to honor him, so I'm going to share it because uh, it goes well with this. He says that the, 
the enemy, the devil, Satan was having a garage sale and he had a bunch of stuff. And uh, people were coming from all over and like collecting the things from his garage sale. And uh, so he was giving the things away from his garage sale, all these things that he's like gained over the years. And he was like wiped clean of all his stuff, finished the day. And yet there was one item that was sitting up on the shelf and it was this wedge up there. And the person says, hey, how much for that wedge? And he's like, oh no, that's not for sale. And he's like, oh, come on. Anything's got a price, right? Like, like what you had, I'll give anything back uh, for that wedge. How about we trade straight up? Would you do that? And Satan's like, oh, no, literally, there's nothing that you can do to take this away from me. This is, this is not for sale. And he says, I'll give my life to you even. Whatever you want, I will give all of myself for you if you were to give me this wedge. And he said, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Because this tool is able to change a person's direction without them even knowing it. And he did so with Judas, and I believe so he can do with us as well. A love for money, and you don't even realize it because it's so little and it's so thin. And all of a sudden, that little bit, and we turn away from the light. And all of a sudden, we see something being used in a way that we wish it wasn't being used and we could use it for something else, like the perfume and the money, and a little bit more, but it's not even noticeable. And then the enemy prompts something deep inside his heart and he makes a decision. You know what? I think I'm gonna do something for my benefit over the benefit of all mankind. I'm gonna be a little bit selfish in this decision. And you don't even notice it, but a little bit more. All of a sudden to the point where yes, in verse 27, the enemy enters in to Judas. But I think it was more just God allowing, okay, here we go. Here's this moment because Judas made the decision to choose darkness over light. And the enemy uses this wedge in our lives too, if we're honest. A little bit of self-righteousness, not even noticeable. Yeah, I deserve this. Yeah, I should have that position of leadership over the other person, a little bit more. What, this person gets their semester paid for, but I have to work two jobs, have a student leadership position and an internship just to make it? Well, that's unfair. A little bit more. How come they have a boyfriend and I don't? How come they have a girlfriend and I don't? A little bit more. Ah, I know I have a job and I know the Bible talks about being generous in our finances, but I'm a student. Once I become an adult, okay, then I'll actually be generous with my finances and a little bit more. And it's not even noticeable at first until we get to this place that it's so far along, we realize, wow, I don't even feel like I'm close to Jesus. I don't even hear him anymore. I have this anger and this selfishness that is eating away inside of me. How did I even get to this point? Little by little by little by little, the enemy desires to work and to divide and to split you apart from one another and of course, from the Lord. We all could be Judas in this story. So there's this example of love. There's this betrayal of love. And then we see at the end here, this command of love. In verse 31, <clears throat> when he was gone, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. 
You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Jesus uses this strong language of a command to his disciples, to those most closest to him. This isn't a suggestion. This is a command from Jesus. There's been this betrayal of love. And now he says to his disciples, all of this, all that I've done for you is now to this point, this new command that I give you to love one another. But it poses the question, and I'll finish with this. Can you really command somebody to love someone else? Can we be forced and ordered to love? Is that really truly possible? And psychologist uh, John Stanford, he says, love cannot be willed. A person who tries to love by an act of will is likely to wind up with a persona that looks like he or she is loving, but has a shadow side hidden inside them of an unconsciousness that negates it. Sounds a bit like Judas. Love must come from the heart if it is to be genuine. It cannot be feigned, which means like simulated or insincere. Not even with the best intentions. And he goes on to say, love can be hidden under rivalry or brokenness and anger if it's not genuine. And all of a sudden we have these feelings of jealousy. We have these feelings of, of gossip or hatred towards someone or disdain or dislike to someone because they said something in a way that was hurtful. Or they, they receive something that I wish I myself could have received and never got. And then these seeds of, of just self-righteousness and, and discord and hatred and jealousy and anger all of a sudden come about. So how do we then, and you guys can come on up, how do we then live according to this command to love one another? And Christ provided the example for us at the beginning of the chapter, right in verse one, it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love, right? The full extent of his love in this moment. And it says in verse three, Jesus knew the father, knew the father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and he would return to God. So Christ showed his full extent of love because he knew the Father. He was in relationship with the Father. He knew where he came from and he knew where he was going. This is how he was able to provide his love and this act and posture of, of humble serving in the posture of a slave because he knew his Father. He had relationship with him. He knew where he was from and he knew where he was going. And that is how we too are able to love one another is we know our, our father. We know our identity and our purpose and our meeting, where we come from, the person who has saved us, who has redeemed us, who's made us new and alive and whole, who has adopted us into his family. We have a new identity. And because of that relationship, that identity of where we come from, the assurance of our future of where we're going then I am able to truly love. 
Because how many could say yes to this and you don't need to show me your hands? How many of you would say yes that at some point in your life to find value, to find meaning, and to find purpose in life, you've chosen to say yes to something, to do something for someone, to accept the leadership position because you know you feel needed then. And if I have this position or title of authority, that means I have purpose and meaning and value, that I am somebody finally, that I truly have an identity because I have a position of authority. And we choose to serve out of trying to find identity and authority in that position. When Christ is saying, hold the phone, we're to find our identity. We're to find our, uh, our assurance of who we are, of where we came from, and where we're going in our relationship with Christ. And then we truly love out of that. Like, could you imagine? Could you imagine if we were to serve to not gain influence at all? to not gain at all, actually to humble ourselves into a position that's lower for the betterment of somebody else. So we're serving not actually for influence. We're not serving for for impact. We're not serving because we want to be noticed or known, but truly just because for the betterment of other people, because I'm fully assured in my identity and who I am already in Christ. I don't need to gain that from a position of leadership. So therefore I'm free to serve. Like, what if we were already anchored in this? That if we were to serve with the assurance of knowing what our future holds, so so even thinking of leadership positions, oh, I'm going to do this because it's going to set me up better for the future. It's going to set me up better for a position later on in life. And we don't have to actually have to think that way because who holds our future is giving us our insurance and our time spent with him so that we're free to serve and to love anyone who is in arm's reach around us. We each have the ability to make that decision. Every single one of us has the ability to make the decision of light or darkness or true love or false love. To follow the example of love or to betray love. To humbly serve through an already established identity in Jesus, full of meaning, full of purpose, without having to prove anything to anybody. Imagine the, the, the humble authority that we would have that would seep out of God's people as we're anchored in our relationship with him. The command to love one another. And so often, and I'll finish with this, so often that passage is used as, a, as an evangelism tool that we're to go and to love the world. Where the context here, Christ is saying that we're to love one another here in the church, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. That's what this command is for. And as we truly submit ourselves, posture ourselves for the betterment of those around us, that kind of commitment to one another, that kind of care and love towards one another, it changed the world. It changed the world in a society that, that social caring and commitment was of, was of all-time low, that there were divides, massive social division. Is there massive social division in our world today? Oh, my. What do you think is going to change it? A humble giving of self, following the example of Christ, of loving 
one another. Would you stand with me? So how do we know to love one another? By knowing the Father. By knowing where our identity comes from is through Him. that He has created us anew. By having the assurance of the hope of the future to come. And so we're going to take a couple moments this evening that I want you to just ask the Lord to reveal in your heart if there's a wedge. I shouldn't say if. We all have wedges, right? Let's be honest. How far along is that wedge right now? And that if he could reveal to us our need of surrendering before him, seeking repentance and confessing to him, because he will forgive, right? He forgave Peter, who denied him. He forgave Thomas, who doubted him. But it was Judas who betrayed him and chose darkness. You have the chance to choose light this evening. Can we pray together? Jesus, I am so humbled that you would kneel down in the posture of a slave before your disciples. As this example that you surrendered your life, your body on the cross for that of mankind. I'm humbled by that, Lord. I'm so grateful for that. Lord, I confess of the times I take that for granted. <clears throat> May this year be a year we, I don't take that for granted. Uh, Lord, it, it, reading this story about Judas can haunt me, but I'm so grateful that in the same breath, I can feel confident and assured that my identity is found in you and you alone. Oh, Lord, I'm so grateful for that. That who I am today is not because of the endeavors that I've put forth, but because of what you have done in my life and how faithful and consistent you are. I know that's the same for everybody here in this room, and I'm so grateful for that, Lord. Jesus, I'm so thankful that your mercy is fresh and new every day. This year, Lord, we want to commit ourselves to this command, to loving one another. Lord, I pray that's done out of uh, the true assurance of knowing you, of, of knowing our, our background, of knowing our, the assurance of our future, and not done out of selfish gain. Lord, I pray against that. We all have those insecurities, Lord, I know. And so I pray against that. I pray against the working of the enemy in our lives, that we would seek to find places of authority because we have a need to be filled. I pray we would, we would find the satisfaction and the fulfillment of that need in you alone first and then step out in a humble service and love towards others, I pray. Lord, this semester, and I even think of this next week, Spirit, prepare our hearts for what you want to say to us. Oh, I surrender now. And on behalf of everyone here, Lord, I say we lay ourselves before you and to say, have your way. Spirit, speak clearly. I pray for your gifts to be in operation next week in full force. I pray for an edification of this body to take place next week. I pray for the empowerment of your spirit into my life, into our lives, into our ministry to one another here in this place next week. Spirit, move. I pray for your baptism to be evident here in this room and in these hearts and the people that are here 
here. God, I pray for commissioning into ministry and into missions and to evangelism to a world that desperately, desperately needs you. I pray an increase in our love for one another and commitment to each other to take place next week and of course throughout this whole semester. Lord, we love you. We give this semester all to you. We give our lives to you. And I pray, Lord, this wouldn't be a high spark, but this would just be a beginning moment of a consistent walk with you this semester that we can look back on, back on and see how faithful you are to being with us. We're going to open up the altar here. If you feel like you would come to the front, would like to, and even to spiritually signifying, saying, okay, I'm going to lay some things down at the altar here that I need to lay down and maybe confess and to give up to the Lord. Dan's going to play a song or two and then we'll pray and dismiss for the evening. But don't miss this opportunity. I know the Lord is speaking to some of you here tonight, to many of you here tonight. And the Spirit is knocking and saying, I want you. And sometimes that act physically stepping forward can spiritually signify a breakthrough in your life. And so if that's you tonight, make your way up to the front and we'll conclude here in a bit.